Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. It's hard to imagine an American city without a Chinese restaurant, a pizza parlor or three, and at least one taco joint. But the cooks who originally made American taste buds salivate at the thought of a good stir fry or a curry are hardly household names, even though their impact on our cuisine lingers. Mayuk Sen's new book, Tastemakers, chronicles seven immigrant women, each from a different country, who transformed American cookery but have since faded from memory. Chaoyang Buwe from China, Elena Zelayeta from Mexico, Madeline Kamen from France, Marcella Hazan from Italy, Julie Sani from India, Najmia Manglij from Iran, and Norma Shirley from Jamaica. Mayuk Sen joins us on Smarty Pants to talk about why these women mattered and why they have been unjustly forgotten. Thank you so much for talking to me, Mayuk. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. So I've been reading your profiles of neglected cookbook authors and chefs for years now. And so I was wondering, you know, what did you hope that bringing seven, I mean, really eight of these profiles together, these stories would show about the culinary experience of immigrants in America and specifically female immigrants in America? So I've been doing stories like this, focusing on figures from you could say marginalized communities uh, since the beginning of my time as a food writer, uh, which was all the way back in 2016 when I was a 24-year-old kid who <laughs> had no idea what he was doing. <laughs> but that's what I felt like, at least. Um, and I really gravitated, you know, in those early days in my career as a food writer towards the stories of uh, figures from marginalized communities because I saw some aspect of my own experience in them. Uh, when I came to food writing, I felt so alone as someone who is a queer person of color, a child of immigrants, someone who is just writing from such a different center of gravity from, uh, you know, my peers and others in my immediate orbit. And so I looked to a lot of immigrant women and uh, immigrant women of color in particular, uh, who had really uh, carved out space for themselves in an industry that was not really designed to accommodate them. Because I really wanted to understand how I could do that myself. Uh, so I first had the idea for this book back in 2017, just a few months into my time as a professional food writer. And I thought, you know, it would make a lot of sense uh, for me within my very limited skill set as a storyteller uh, to, you know, focus on, uh, you know, just a few specific figures who were immigrant women uh, who have really shape the way that America cooks and eats today, uh, even if cultural memory has not uh, sufficiently honored them in the same way it has uh, a figure like Julia Child, for example, uh, because there's so many figures uh, who do not come from privileged populations, who just don't have the benefits of uh, longevity in the American memory that someone like Child has. But fast forward to 2018, this book started to really take shape because I had noticed over just the course of that year from 2017 to 2018, so many narratives uh, within the American food media, let's say, that were akin to immigrants get the job done and immigrants feed America. And these were usually coming from white-led publications. And, you know, I'll be charitable here. Maybe, uh, you know, the messengers were well-intentioned, yet I felt so unsettled by the prevalence of these talking points, because to me, they seem to abstract the actual labor and lives and the creative aspirations of immigrants themselves. And instead, you know, further this idea that the value of immigrants uh, 
in America must be based and measured by their productivity and what they can provide to a certain kind of consumer. And that person, that consumer is whites, middle top or middle class, you know, it's the same consumer whom the America food media has a privilege for so long. And so I wanted to decenter that reader. Yeah, I think the reductive framing you talk about also erases the complexity of the immigrant experience, right? I mean, you can say that immigrants get the job done, but, you know, Chinese food, Mexican food, even Italian food, so revered today, French food, none of that was revered in America from the beginning. Absolutely. And what's striking about the women you talk about is that they're almost a reversal of the narrative you would expect, because a lot of these women were blockbusters in their day. And now no one knows their names. Yeah, there's absolutely a pretty marked difference, I would say. You know, of the seven women, uh, Marcella Hazan is likely the one whose name most uh, casual American home cooks are familiar with. But otherwise, you know, a lot of these other women, uh, this might be the first time that my readers uh, meet them in some capacity. Yet a lot of these women were also stars in their respective eras and their times. You know, I'm thinking, for example of Elena Zelayeta. She was a Mexican-born chef who came to uh, California's Bay Area in the early 20th century um, during the time of the Mexican Revolution. She was effectively displaced, uh, you know, as a result of the revolution. And uh, she carved out a career for herself as a restaurant chef and later a cookbook author. And, you know, she began her career uh, as a cookbook author writing mostly about Mexican and Spanish recipes, which resembled those that she had back in her country of origin. But yet, as time went on, uh, you know, she started to embrace different influences uh, from, you know, uh, the kind of culinary traditions that surrounded her uh, in California. So you'll see that, you know, in her later cookbooks, she begins uh, incorporating uh, Japanese and Italian ingredients and recipes. And, you know, her cooking really reflected her sense of place and how it evolved and also her identity. She really saw herself as American and, you know, as a resident of California. And she was not afraid to have her cooking reflect that. And I think those aspects, that kind of embrace of uh, patriotism, you could call it American patriotism, really made her popular in her era. You know, she began working right in the post-World War II era, and, you know, she had a very inspirational backstory, uh, which she kind of uh, folded into her uh, cookbooks pretty prominently. Uh, she had lost her sight as an adult, and so she taught herself how to cook all over again uh, using her remaining senses. And that is a pretty remarkable story, right? And it was quite a hopeful one to a lot of readers in that time. And, you know, that combined with the strength of uh, an appeal of her recipes, you know, really made her popular in that era. Yet my sense was that, you know, her later career embrace of these American ingredients, so to speak, and ingredients that were not just Mexican and just Spanish, which is, you know, uh, represented who she was and where she came from, actually uh, did a disservice to her ability to kind of have some stamina in the American memory in the sense that very few people in the American food media could point to her as an authority on Mexican cooking because there were other figures uh, who followed her who may have written uh, cookbooks that fulfilled that brief a bit more. And as a result, they kind of usurped whatever position that she did hold in her time. Uh, so I saw, you know, 
aspects or versions of that same sort of narrative play out in a lot of these women's stories. Yeah, I think Elena Zelaya's story is also interesting because she was profiled by Craig Claiborne, who is one of the notorious food establishment members that you write about. And you reference Nora Ephron's 1968 essay about said food establishment, which just has the greatest title, Life in the Land of the Rising Souffle. Or is it the Rising Meringue? <laughs> it's a great title. I wish magazine articles had titles like that nowadays. <laughs> exactly. Are you and Nora Ephron talking about the same people? And what role did those people play in the lives of these women and their success or lack thereof. Yeah, well, I, I believe, uh, maybe Nora disagrees, but I believe <laughs> that Nora and I were definitely talking about the same people because uh, the food establishment, uh, you know, members of that uh, esteemed uh, group were uh, people like Craig Claiborne, for example, who was the food editor of the New York Times beginning in 1957 until I believe the mid-1980s. In addition to uh, Craig Claiborne, there was James Beard, who was a very prolific uh, cookbook author and now has whole series of awards, uh, you know, <laughs> under his name. Uh, there's also uh, Julia Child. Uh, a lot of these figures, well, almost all of them are white, first of all. They also had uh, enormous sway over American tastes. And, you know, in the case of someone like Craig Claiborne, you know, his position at the paper of record allowed him to you know, really make stars out of uh, people who did not necessarily have a huge public profile. And, you know, as uh, readers kind of spend time with the early chapters in this book, they'll see Craig Claiborne. He's the best supporting actor in this book, I feel like, because he, he pops up in all of them. And he was really responsible uh, in his uh, position as the food editor at the Times for really uh, bringing attention to uh, figures from marginalized communities, especially uh, immigrant women, uh, to wider American audiences, uh, you know, in addition to Elena Zalieta, whom he hailed as, you know, someone who was an expert on Mexican cooking, uh, I believe. He made a star, effectively, out of Madeleine Kamen, who was uh, from France. And she has a really funny, sweet story in that uh, it was the late 1960s when she was living in a Pennsylvania suburb, and she saw some snail recipe uh, that Craig Claiborne had published uh, in The Times, and was so unsettled by it that she was, she was prompted to write a letter to him. And that letter made him decide to visit her and profile her <laughs> in a story that ran in 1968 in the Times. And she was just this recent immigrant from France. She was working as a cooking teacher. She was very much not a celebrity by any means uh, at that point. Yet that kind of endorsement just, you know, opened up access to capital and opportunity that was not otherwise easily available to her. You know, after that, she was able to get a cookbook deal, which turned into 1971's The Making of a Cook. And then she wrote many more cookbooks. She opened restaurants. She had her own cooking television show uh, in the 80s and early 90s. I mean, she did it all. And yet, I wonder how much of that would have even been possible had it not been for a figure like Claiborne and the doors that he effectively opened for her uh, because it exposed a much wider audience to her many, many talents. Yeah, I think her story is really interesting in contrast to Julia Child's. Um, and Julia's story contrasts with everyone's in the book, but both Julia Child and Madeline Kamen were known for French cooking. 
and only mm-hmm. one of them shows up in the food Illuminati. Yeah. So <laughs> the food Illuminati, <laughs> like, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the difference between the two of them, especially? You know, like why did Julia make it? Really, Madeline made it too, but you know, Julia and Julia is the movie that we watched. You know, ten years ago, not me and totally. Madeline. Right, exactly. It was Julian Julia and directed by our friend uh, Nora Ephron, <laughs> whom I love, by the way. I love very much and I respect her enormously. Um, yeah, so I should preface all this by saying that uh, Madeline's, uh, you know, unfairly, Madeline's uh, claim to fame, so to speak, for a lot of uh, Americans was the fact that she was quite outspoken about Julia's supremacy over the American mind. She had a lot of problems. Um, at least judging from what she told the press, uh, with the fact that Julia, who was a white American woman, had ascended to a position where she was essentially the authority on French cooking, in spite of the fact that French women like Madeleine herself were just as, if not more qualified, uh, to hold such a position. And what was, I believe, particularly insulting to someone like Madeleine is the fact that Julia Child, she occasionally did go to the press and uh, say unflattering things about French women. I believe there's an early 1970s Washington Post quote in which she says, French women don't know a damn thing about French cooking, you know? Uh, And so I I believe that uh, Madeline, you know, had every right to be insulted, yet she unfairly, uh, you know, was kind of rendered in the press as this antagonistic figure, you know, this crawl on Julia's side who is constantly agitating, you know, this uh, treasured American icon and star and had the audacity to question uh, the fact that Julia uh, was so popular. And so what I really sought to do in my chapter on Madeline was to understand where her anger was coming from, you know, because so few writers... uh, in her lifetime seemed to do that, just judging from my sifting through the archives. Anyway, my hypothesis, let's say, uh, in, or my statement, rather, uh, in my little interlude on Julia Child in this book is that she possessed certain privileges that allowed her to ascend to that very position that Madeline critiqued her uh, for being in, in the sense that she was a white American woman who came from immense material luxuries that a lot of uh, people did not possess, especially immigrants, even French immigrants. You know, Madeline Kamen was also white, yet she was at a uh, you know, a number of disadvantages compared to someone like Julia Child. And she was also uh, writing in an era right before uh, Madeleine Kamen kind of entered the scene. You know, her uh, Mastering the Art of French Cooking uh, came out a full decade before Madeleine's first book, The Making of a Cook. And so Julia was essentially, you know, she was immensely talented, so, so gifted. And I hope that my reverence for her comes through in my little interlude on her, uh, because I've already seen characterizations of it as some sort of takedown, you know, and this is not an attempted cancellation of Julia Child. If anything, it's just a reframing of her legacy. But, you know, she was at the right place at the right time, and that allowed her gifts to reach a very wide audience. And Madeline didn't have those same benefits. Yeah, speaking of being at the right place at the right time, or maybe the wrong person at the wrong time or the right person at the wrong time, I wonder how the contemporary political environment in America affected the reception of each of these women. I'm thinking of Najmi Abbott-Manglidge having to self-publish, for instance, or Chaoyang Bue's book being seen as a, a diplomatic effort worthy, in Pearl S. Buck's words, of the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, uh-huh. how totally. 
how does that play into things? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had to ask myself that constantly because it's, I guess it's so tempting for a lot of food writers to depoliticize, uh, you know, uh, their writing and their understanding of uh, food history. And that is the last thing that I ever want to do. Uh, so Najmi about Mangaj's story, the first one that you mentioned, you know, she she came to America in the early 1980s uh, after living as a refugee for a few years in France in a village called Vence. And she had uh, fled to France from her home country of Iran around the time of the Iranian revolution back in 1979. Uh, so it was political instability that forced her to leave her uh, country of origin. And, you know, after a few years in France, she realized that, uh, you know, that was not the most hospitable place for her to raise her two uh, young sons. And so she moved to America and said, and specifically Washington, D.C., uh, yet, uh, you know, that was in a time when uh, the revolution still cast, uh, you know, a very long shadow. And in addition to that, uh, the Iran hostage crisis was also quite a recent memory. And so as a result, uh, Najmiya, she came to America and she tried to sell an English language Iranian cookbook. And she was credentialed in all the right ways. She had written an Iranian cookbook back in France in the French language. It was put out by a French publisher. Uh, yet when she sent out query letters in the early 80s in America for this English language Iranian cookbook, she was met with either polite rejection or total silence from these major publishers who seemed willing to put out cookbooks uh, from other countries in what we may call the global south today. And the message there implicitly was that, you know, publishing an Iranian cookbook in that time in America was anathema to most major publishers in the sense that they likely thought that it would just not sell. And so as a result, instead of being, uh, you know, so discouraged that she was paralyzed, essentially, uh, creatively, what she did was she and her husband, Muhammad, they teamed together and they started their own publishing house that... Uh, essentially, it put out that first cookbook, which became uh, Food of Life, which was published in uh, the mid-1980s in America. And then she has published all of her cookbooks since, and she's written so many. And it's pretty astonishing looking at her story because she essentially had to circumvent the limited imagination, I'll be polite here, <laughs> of uh, the American food establishment and the publishing landscape uh, just to make her voice heard. And what I found really inspiring about her story is the fact that she actually began writing in America for her own people. She conceived that cookbook, Food of Life, as a love letter to her sons. And she also wrote it for members of the Iranian diaspora who like herself or like her children, may never be able to taste again, you know, the or experience kind of the culinary bounties of that country because of political realities and circumstances. Uh, yet she had to resort to self-publishing to do that. And it totally worked for her. And now she is uh, beloved by many people, both within the Iranian diaspora and outside of it. Yet it took those circumstances uh, for that to even happen. So the book isn't exactly chronological, but there is an arc to it. And you deliberately end with Najmiya Batmanglij and Norma Shirley, who's from Jamaica, both of whom made it on their own steam without the blessing of the Craig Claibornes of the world. And you suggest that their stories are possibly a way forward for food in America. What do you mean by that? Yeah, totally. So in addition to Najmiya's story, but Norma Shirley, uh, for listeners who aren't familiar, uh, she was a Jamaican-born uh, chef and restaurateur who 
she cooked in the Berkshires in Massachusetts uh, in the 1970s, and uh, she cooked what she called French food with Jamaican flair. And after a few years of doing that, she decided that she was going to give New York a shot, and she was going to open a restaurant of her own where she was going to express, uh, you know, her culinary self without filter. And so she moved there as a single mother, and she tried to mount her own restaurant, yet it was impossible for her to access enough capital to open that restaurant uh, because she was a Black immigrant woman from the Caribbean who had very few connections to the food establishment of that time. And so instead, she found other work as a food stylist, and that seemed to be quite fulfilling. But after a few years, she was like, you know what? I miss home. And it was my intention to always cook for my own people. I want to cook for Black Jamaicans specifically. So she returned back home to Jamaica in the mid-1980s, and then she began her own restaurants. She did not have as much trouble securing that capital that she did uh, back in New York. And she became a star in no uncertain terms in Jamaica, starting from the mid-1980s. And it was only then that the American food media started to really pay attention to her. And they started to saddle her with these titles like uh, Julia Childs of Jamaica, or she's the Julia Child of the Caribbean, <laughs> which uh, feels so constraining as a sort of a rhetorical crutch. But uh, she kept on cooking uh, until her death in uh, 2010, uh, yet... Her story has parallels to Najmia's in the sense that she tried to make it work and, you know, make a living by working within the confines of the American food industry. Uh, and then she realized that that was not possible. She could not survive. And so instead, she went back home and she decided to create for her own community and her own people. And it was only then that she found a sort of fulfillment that she had been unable to find back in America. And then she also <laughs> was able to actually make a living and really thrive uh, doing that sort of work. And what I find so inspiring about both Najmi and uh, Norma's stories is that they created for their own communities and they realized that that is where fulfillment arrives uh, because it is so easy, especially if you come from any sort of marginalized community, like a lot of these women did and like I myself do, uh, to create for the dominant culture and these privileged populations because they're the ones who hold capital. And, you know, when I look back on my own very short career in this industry, you know, I'm sure that someone could accuse me of doing just that as someone who's performing for, you know, that white gaze. <laughs> and so as I was writing this book, you know, what really stuck with me about Najmi and Norma's stories is that, you know, there is a version of success that does not uh, include catering uh, and kind of contorting yourself uh, to please the dominant culture. You know, you can create for your own communities and uh, still make a living and be a happy, content person, which is which is what I want as a creative worker. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's all we can hope for, really. I mean, do you think that the food establishment is getting better? Do you think that the way it interacts with marginalized cuisines or people has changed or is changing or is it just empty slogans? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the constant question on my mind, right? Especially since last year when there are a lot of uh, public shifts uh, in the industry, public in the sense that, you know, many people from outside of food media saw just how deeply embedded racism and classism and other forms of discrimination are uh, in the American food media because in summer 2020, 
saw upheavals at so many prominent food publications like Bon Appetit and the Los Angeles Times food section. Uh, I really do think it's too soon to tell if things are changing even, you know, uh, because even though I've only been in this industry for five years, you know, I remember being young and naive enough to believe that things were changing for people who looked like me and others who come from marginalized communities and that uh, we would maybe not have to fight as hard for, you know, basic respect that is afforded so easily to my white American peers. Yet, I'm not quite sure that's the case. And uh, it might take a few years for us to really see whether the food establishment really does change in uh, substantial ways and really give, uh, you know, material opportunities uh, to people from marginalized communities. Instead of kind of waiting around to see, you know, whether my hopes and dreams pan out, what I am trying to invest a lot of my energy in is looking to independent food media as kind of uh, the future and the way forward. You know, I'm so inspired by publications like Whetstone Magazine, which is run by Stephen Satterfield, who many people may know as the host of Netflix's A High on the Hog, and of Vittles, which is a Substack publication um, run out of the UK uh, by an amazing food writer named Jonathan Nunn, uh, as, you know, places that house stories that many mainstream, quote unquote, uh, food publications would not touch. And, you know, they do so from a truly decolonized perspective. And the same goes for uh, independently working writers and creators like Alicia Kennedy, who's a very popular newsletter from the desk of Alicia Kennedy. Again, uh, it features perspectives that uh, many uh, traditional food publications might shy away from. Uh, it is my hope moving forward that those sorts of writers like Alicia Kennedy and publications like Whetstone and Vittles and the many, many other independent uh, food publications will thrive to such a degree that they render these sorts of broken uh, institutions, uh, you know, obsolete eventually. And that those magazines that have let readers and people like myself down time and time again uh, will not have as much influence because independent food media has taken over. We have links in the show notes to Mayuksen's new book, Tastemakers, Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America, as well as his recommendations for independent food media, Nora Efren's quintessential essay on the food establishment, a rundown of all the 2020 food reckonings in case you missed them, and some more culinary interviews and lists we've done here at The American Scholar. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Mm-hmm.